All right, well, we are going through the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians, and we're into the part of the letter where Paul is beginning to respond to some of reports that he has received from the church in Corinth. And we looked at one of these last week. We're going to look at another one of them today, and we're just going to jump right in. So we're in chapter 6, we'll be in the first eight verses. So let me read verse 1 and kind of set the stage for where we're going. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So the, the report here, the subject matter at hand is that um, there are apparently some, some grievances, some some disagreements, some disputes going on in the church at Corinth. As the text will go on to say, these are situations where perhaps you feel wronged and defrauded by someone in the church. Something that was yours was, was taken away. Perhaps you've been mistreated or spoken of inaccurately and unfairly, and your reputation has been hurt. Um, a grievance or dispute implies that there are two parties, right? And that they can't come to a resolution, an agreeable solution on their own. And so there's tension, there's distrust, there's hurt, there's broken relationships. I imagine all of you can fairly easily think of several situations where, in your life where this has been the case, where there has been broken relationships, where you've been hurt or you have hurt someone else. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you can probably think of situations in the church between fellow brothers and sisters in Christ where this has been the case. Now, it's worth pointing out that nowhere in Scripture are we led to believe that these things won't happen in the church, that we'll always just get along and agree, that we'll never be hurt or offended, never hurt or offend, never find ourselves at tension with one another. Um, and in fact, many of the commands that God gives us in Scripture imply that these things will happen, like forgive one another, because you're going to be sinned against. You're going to feel hurt and offended. Bear with one another, because you're going to want to just pull out and go find a different group of people that appear, at least for a little while, easier to get along with. However, what is clear is that God's people are equipped and called to respond differently in these situations, when there is hurt, when there is offense. We are equipped and called to respond differently than what is natural in our sin nature and differently than how the world responds. And we live in a world where, I mean, this, this subject that we're looking about here is all over the place, right? We live in a world that wants to make much of any sort of offense or grievance. We live in a world where there is a, there are a lot of attorneys and lawyers, and they keep busy. We live in a world that is all too willing to sue anytime we've been wronged. And this is not just out there, this is the air we breathe that we all have been affected by to some degree. So how should Christians respond in these situations? And in these verses, we see that God's people possess two things that equip them to respond differently 
in cases of grievances or hurts or disputes. Okay, so two things. The first thing that God's people have that equips them to respond differently is wisdom competent, wisdom competent to settle disputes amongst themselves. Wisdom. So verses 2 through 6. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Or those outside of the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between believers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, this first part about God's people, saints, that that is all true disciples of Jesus, judging the world and judging angels is a little bit difficult to understand just because there's not much in Scripture to tell us what this means or what this will look like. Um, Jesus does tell his 12 disciples that they will judge, they will sit on 12 thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. But the most we can really say with confidence is that in some sense, God's people will participate with God in the final judgment of the world. That perhaps in our perfected state, we will have wisdom sufficient to do such a thing. But Paul brings us up here, not to really get into the weeds on what exactly the future looks like, but to make an implication for right now. If this is a role for the people of God in the age to come, then the people of God even now ought to have enough wisdom to settle disputes and grievances amongst themselves. Already we are new creations. We have been made new. We have been changed. We have God's Spirit in us, leading us and guiding us and convicting us and teaching us. You can think of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, then those who fear the Lord have some wisdom and knowledge that the rest of the world does not. And so Paul asks rhetorically, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle disputes? Surely in a group of saints in a church, there are some with sufficient character and maturity and experience as saints to judge trivial cases or matters pertaining to this life. This is something the church should be able to handle because who the church is made up of. Because God's people have the fear of the Lord and have a concern for things like justice and truth and honesty and and mercy. And so when, when we find ourselves having a being hurt by, having disputes with, grievances against those within our midst, rather than taking the matter outside of the church to the secular courts to get it, our, to get it figured out, we ought to find a non-biased brother or sister in Christ to discern the case, to try to bring peace and reconciliation. 
Now, one other place in Scripture that's helpful just to consider in this light and to connect this to is Matthew 18, um, a passage we've considered a number of times over the last few weeks. But just a couple verses here. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, so somewhat of the same situation, a, a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So in other words, there is a prior step that we should seek before we're like going to find an outside person to, to come in and mediate a situation. And that is, go to your brother or sister and try to reconcile with them. Be honest. And, and most of the time, this will probably solve the issue. Perhaps they acknowledge that and own up to, to either hurting you or sinning against you, and that's the end of it. Maybe they didn't realize what they had done, there was no intention of it, and so it's just a conversation. Maybe you didn't see the situation rightly, and talking to them clears it up, and it's just a conversation. But if after this, after a conversation or many conversations, there is, still, there is still hurt, there is still offense, it's still unresolved. You have a couple of options. One, in the words of Peter, you can let love cover a multitude of sins. You choose to move on and not hold any bitterness or grudges. You forgive them, you pray for them, and continue to love them as your brother or sister. Not every single time that we are hurt or offended or supposedly sinned against, needs to be hashed out. In the words of Ephesians 4, be patient, bearing with one another in love. I mean, if we had to have like a mediation and trial every time somebody hurt or offended us, we'd do nothing else. We patiently bear with one another in love. However, if there's an ongoing pattern or something more significant that needs to be addressed, you can bring in another believer or two or three to judge between. It's possible that, and probably likely, that both sides don't see things completely accurately. And we would benefit from an outside third party. And it's possible that what seems like such a big deal to us when we bring in others isn't actually that big of a deal and doesn't need to be made much of. But the point of 1 Corinthians here is that this kind of wisdom and mediation should be sought among believers. The church community is sufficient to handle such things. Um, in part, because what a shame it would be for, and this is apparently what was happening in, in Corinth, for two believers who bear the name of Christ, you know, have t-shirts that say, I am a follower of Christ. If you want to know what Christ does and is like, look at me. If you want to know what it means to be compelled by the love of Christ, look at me. And then they're standing in court accusing one another viciously. What a poor witness that would give. Now, it's important to note that this is not the only place in the Bible that talks about courts or judgments or authorities outside of the church. 
And this is important because sometimes this passage is taken to mean that there is never a situation where a Christian or church should call on or defer to the legal or justice systems. That even in cases of, say, abuse or physical harm or threat, that the church should handle these alone and not let authorities or the law enforcement in. And the result of this is often that offenders get away and the hurt or abused or the vulnerable aren't protected. So we need to be clear that there is a role for the secular courts and for law enforcement. We are told that governing authorities have been instituted by God, and that they do not bear the sword in vain, that they are a means to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So governing authorities are one means, and they don't do this perfectly, but they are still one means of God bringing justice in the world. They have a role. It's not an ultimate role. It's not a role they do perfectly, but they have a role. And unfortunately, there are times, even in the church, when it's not a matter of a grievance or dispute or a disagreement or hurt feelings, but it's actually a matter of protecting the vulnerable and bringing evildoers to justice. And the church should make use of the role, the God-given role of secular authorities. This doesn't mean that the state has final authority over matters of the church, but simply that we recognize that the state is called to enact justice in ways that we are not. Like, we don't have a prison here at church. We don't fine people. And there's a need for wisdom in this, certainly. Like, is this a case, is this a criminal case that needs to be deferred to secular authorities? Most of the time that should be pretty clear, but sometimes perhaps it's not, and there's a need for wisdom. Or is this a dispute or grievance where I really am wronged, I really have been hurt or sinned against, and perhaps I could bring a lawsuit, you can bring a lawsuit for pretty much anything, uh, but perhaps I am called and we are called to have it resolved within the church. The second thing that God's people have that equips us to respond to grievances and disputes differently is this, the self-giving love of Christ causing us to prefer to be wronged by one another than to risk wronging another. The self-giving love of Christ causing them to prefer to be wronged by one another and to risk wronging one, wronging one another. Last two verses we'll look at uh, in, in 1 Corinthians here. Uh, Paul continues, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers? Paul assumes that it would be better as a Christian to be wronged and defrauded than to risk wronging and defrauding someone else. Now, we can say two things very confidently. This conviction is completely out of step with our Western American individualistic mindset, especially perhaps on Independence Day. <laughs> but this conviction is completely in step with the character and call of God. And so before even unpacking what this might 
look like in practice, consider the example and calling that God gives us. Jesus suffered the pinnacle of injustice. He was wronged and defrauded. He had his honor taken away from him as he was beaten and mocked. His friends and allies and disciples abandoned him, though he had done them nothing wrong. His life was taken away from him, though he had done no evil. He was cast as an evildoer. But like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, in the words of Isaiah, so he opened not his mouth. He went willingly. He didn't fight back. He didn't say, this is unjust. I, I'm going to stand up for my rights. But this is more than simply an impressive example for us to wonder at. This is personal. And it was brought about by our sins. His suffering and death were for us. He was wronged for us. He bore our sins. He died in our place. He bore the punishment we deserved. And he did this willingly, joyfully, out of love for us, for the joy that was set before him, as Hebrews says. He went this path. And as Paul will go on to say in the next two verses, the next few verses, which we'll cover next week, whatever you were before Christ, and Paul lists sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, that's Paul's list there. There are more. What, but whatever you were, you were washed. You were cleansed, sanctified, justified, made right in the name of the Lord Jesus by the work of Jesus. And that's not who you are anymore. You are a new creation. Which means that as a Christian, the balance of life is never against you. Right? You never get the short end of the stick. You never, you never get to the point where the hurt that others have done to you or the misfortune and unfairness that life seems to bring you outweighs what God has done for you and who you are in Him. You never, you always get more than you deserve. Which means that self-pity and bitterness, those, those things that are always crouching at the door, right, which are so easy to be overcome by, but they're never justified as a Christian. There's never a justification for self-pity, for woe is me, for bitterness. Because Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. And because Jesus has done this, God calls his people to live similarly. The classic passage in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, so 
as a Christian, God works this in you, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And so Jesus showed us that a worthwhile and fulfilling life isn't about getting all that we can, defending our rights at every turn, and making people pay whenever they infringe upon our rights. but rather giving all that we can, not making use of all of our rights, and forgiving people when they infringe upon us, turning the other cheek. Jesus shows us that you are not losing at life when you do this. You are not missing out on anything. Because in him, we have all that we need. We have his presence, his favor, his protection, his promises to cling to. We know that he is with us, will never leave us or forsake us. We know that he's working all things together for our good. To put it in uh, modern, perhaps somewhat cheesy terms, our love tank is always full (laughs) and ready to be poured out. Now, of course, it doesn't always feel full. We do get tired. We do get exhausted. We need a break. We, we do feel hurt and offended and used, and sometimes we need to have hard conversations and set boundaries, of course. But the reason that we are called to count others more significant than ourselves is that Jesus equips us, his people, to do exactly that, to give ourselves to others. So back to the context of 1 Corinthians here, a specific outworking or example of counting others more significant than ourselves is prefer to be wronged than to risk wronging. In times of dispute, when you're quite certain you're right, you see things truthfully and you are on the side of justice and fairness, but your brother or sister feels similarly. At the very least, grant their conviction at least equal weight as yours. If it's not a matter of needing to call on the authorities to protect people or a matter of questioning their faith, as we talked about last week in chapter 5, then either let it go and refuse to hold on to bitterness or forgiveness or secret neutral mediator to decide the dispute. And just to be clear, we can wrong our brother or sister by saying nothing just as much as by bringing a lawsuit against them, right? Turning the cold shoulder, being passive-aggressive, cutting off relationship, holding on to bitterness and forgiveness. Those are all ways that we wrong one another without doing anything. And that is how the world responds in these situations. It's just another way of putting ourselves above others and just clinging to our rights. Rather, we are called to have no quota on the number of times we forgive one another, which is what Jesus' words about seven times, 70 times 7 is. Like, don't be keeping track. Don't have a tally of, all right, you're past the limit. 
We are called to keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of wrongs, to bear with one another in relationship, even when it doesn't benefit us, even when it uncomfortably infringes upon us. And surely this is the kind of love that Jesus says, by your love for one another, they will know that you are my disciples. Like this kind of radical, committed love The world will look on and see something unnatural, different, and compelling. They will see that our lives have truly been changed, that we aren't, are we no longer just living for ourselves and seeking our own ends, but have a greater king over us, that our hearts have been captured by a greater affection in the language of Thomas Chalmers. In other words, Living like this and being a church that acts like this is not something that we can just will or work ourselves into. It is a result. It is a fruit of God working first in us. As we come to Him and confess Him as both glorious Lord and sufficient, gracious Savior. It is a fruit of that as we continually root ourselves or connect ourselves as the the branches to the vine of of Jesus. So may God work this in us individually and as a church. May we be slow to anger, quick to listen, slow to speak. May we learn what it means to bear with one another and not just because we don't really engage with one another, but because we pursue one another. And any time you do that, there are times of hurt. So we pray for God to to work this in us that we may be a compelling and give a compelling witness to the community around us. Let's pray.